We're continuing our uh, brief series uh, on four psalms uh, called the Words for the Way. And uh, you, may, you, you may have noticed, but there's a lot of talk right now about safe spaces. Because when you've been hurt or when you've been wronged, you want to know where is it safe to talk about this? And that's understandable because we all have this longing inside of us to have our interior life witnessed. We want to be able to talk to somebody who hears and knows what's inside of us. And not just hears and knows, but actually cares. And more often than not, not only just hears and knows and cares, but someone who can actually do something about it. And in many ways, that's what prayer is. It's, it's talking to someone who hears and knows and cares and promises to do something about it. We're going to be looking at a psalm this morning, Psalm 10, that bears witness to the reality that God is a safe place to go. Even when you have been the victim of somebody's evil and wicked deeds. Because the Psalms are words for the way. They're words for the varied emotional and psychological and spiritual experiences of our heart. And last week we looked at Psalm 51, which were words for when we've done wrong. But this morning we're looking at Psalm 10, which is words for when we've been wronged. Because we not only bring our sins to Jesus, we bring him our wounds and our scars. So with that in mind, would you give your attention to the reading of God's word? And now a reading from Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts in the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. 
so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would deal with our hearts. Uh, You know uh, the sorrows and the pains and the burdens and the aches uh, that we bring into this room. And we pray that you would minister to us by your word and through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You know, one of the great stumbling blocks for many people around the Christian faith is this. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, why is there so much evil and injustice in the world? Maybe you've asked that question yourself. And you look around, you see human trafficking, you see genocide, you see exploitation, you see oppression. And not just in one place, but everywhere. And not just in one period of history, but all throughout. But even closer to home, and make this a little more personal, some of us in this room have our own painful stories of grievous wrongs done to us. Some of us experienced physical or sexual abuse as a child. Or maybe you've been picked on by bullies all your life. Or maybe your mom and dad peaced out on you when you were young. Or maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife cheated on you. Maybe, maybe your best friend betrayed you by sharing your secrets. And however you've been wronged, your heart wants to cry out, why? Why, God, did you let this happen? Why don't you do something about this? And sometimes we think we're the first people to ask the why question, but here it is in the Bible, in the very first verse of this psalm. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, that that question why is a loaded question, right? It, it, It can express a lot of different things. It can express curiosity. Like people ask me, why do you love college football so much? Why do you let your emotional life go up and down with the Tennessee Vols football team and their terrible performance yesterday, even though they pull out a one? Yeah, why? Uh, why can express annoyance? Like you might say to a member of your family, why do you leave toothpaste blobs all over the sink? Right? Any guilty parties in here? Or why can express defensiveness? Like why do you keep telling me what to do? But here in Psalm 10, this why question is an expression of anger. The psalmist doesn't use the word anger, but there's no doubt he's angry. Because what other emotion goes with his description of injustice and wickedness in verses 2 through 11? Or what other feeling captures the spirit of a verse like verse 15? Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. The question why is very personal for this psalmist. He's personally experienced things that deeply upset him, and he's angry. Uh, You know the the Christmas movie Elf, uh, when Will Ferrell says, he's an angry elf. This is an angry psalm, and you have to ask the question, who let this in our Bible? And the answer is this, God did. God put it in his book for you and for me. These are words for the way. And by the way, this isn't the only angry psalm. There are others. Because the psalmists at times are very angry people. And we don't know what to do with that. And I think one of the reasons we don't know what to do with that is because we don't know what to do with our own anger. Anger is the main emotion that we feel when we've been wronged. 
And God gives us words that we can use when we are angry. Psalm 10 is written with victims in mind. People who've been wronged. And it is a song, song of honest anguish and anger. He's outraged at the evil all around him. And he's having an honest conversation with God about all of this. And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about four things we learn from this psalm about how we can deal with our anger in the presence of God. Four things that we need to do with our anger when we've been wrong, if we want to handle it well. And those four things are this. We need to own it. We need to pray it. We need to process it. And we need to direct it at the right place. We need to own our anger. We need to pray our anger. We need to process our anger. And we need to direct our anger. So buckle your chin straps. This is not going to be easy, uh, but we're going to run through it. So let's start first with, we need to own our anger. And the reason is very simple. If you don't own your anger, your anger will own you. Uh, I don't know how many of you ever saw the movie Anger Management. Uh, They came out in like 2003. It starred Jack Nicholson and Adam Sandler, kind of at the height of Adam Sandler's uh, fame. And uh, it involves a very angry individual named Dave Busnick, played by Adam Sandler, and a therapist named Dr. Buddy Rydell, played by Jack Nicholson. And in one of the scenes, Dr. Buddy Rydell says to Dave, let me explain something to you, Dave. And picture or imagine Jack Nicholson, his voice. There are two kinds of angry people in this world, explosive and implosive. Explosive is the kind of individual you see screaming at the cashier for not taking their coupons. Implosive is the cashier who remains quiet day after day and then finally shoots everyone in the store. Dave, you're the cashier. Dave says, no, 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 no. I'm the guy hiding in the frozen food section dialing 911. I swear. And it's such a a wonderful scene because most of us do not like to admit we're angry. And the telltale sign is this. More often than not, when we're angry, we say, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated, right? And there's a variety of reasons why we want to say that. Uh, Those of us who are of a more traditional temperament, we say, I'm not angry because we don't think anger is ever virtuous. And we want to be virtuous. So we never want to admit to being angry. But those of us with a more liberal temperament, we say, I'm not angry because we see ourselves as understanding and wise. We say it all depends on your perspective. You know, you've heard one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Let's not pass judgments. But here is the problem. There really are bad things in this world. Really bad things. And if you never get angry, you are out of touch with reality. Over the years that I've been a pastor, one thing I've learned is that most of us are very angry inside. And here's, here's a little free, free bit for you. Some of us who smile all the time, we're the angriest. <laughs> we're angry, but we don't want to own it. So we try to bury it. And we use a variety of strategies. We try to bury it by denying it. That's the I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated or I'm just disappointed. We try to dress it up in disguise. Right? I'm not angry, I'm just tired. We try to bury it by minimizing our hurt. NBD, no big deal, but it's a huge deal to us. 
And the thing is this, is that burying your anger is like burying toxic waste. You might remove it from sight, but eventually it's going to ruin the whole ecosystem. Psalm 10 is a psalm where the psalmist is owning his anger. And we can see this because he names what is angering him. Look at his list in verses 2 through 11. The psalmist surveys the ways of the wicked. He gives a, a character sketch. And he says the wicked are arrogant. If you look at verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, full of words about pride and boasting. They gloat while they use and abuse people, especially the poor and vulnerable. They feel bulletproof because they think either that there is no God, verse 4, or if there is, he doesn't see and he doesn't care, verse 11. Listen to how the psalmist describes the way the wicked talk, verse 7. They verbally attack and mock and humiliate and denigrate. They lie and attempt, intimidate with their words. And here's something else. They ambush. They go stealth to sneak up on the helpless, verse 8. They lurk like a lion about to pounce on its prey. They draw the poor into their net, verse 9. And they oppress by their actions, verse 10 says, the helpless are crushed. And if we were to sum it up, when the psalmist is looking at the wicked, he says they're driven by an insatiable desire for self-preservation and self-gratification. And the truly troubling thing for him is that they seem to be getting away with all this. The wicked are getting away with their wickedness. Now, hold up for a second because I know some of you are saying, yeah, but like, aren't all of us prone to wickedness with respect to God? And yes, that's true. And that's why we talked last week about words for when you've done wrong. But on a person-to-person level... There, are, there is such a thing as offender and offended, as villain and victim. And the psalmist uses a variety of words to describe the victims here. He calls them the poor in verse 2. He calls them the innocent in verse 8. He calls them the helpless in verse 8 and 10. The afflicted in verse 12. The fatherless in verse 14. The oppressed in verse 18. People in positions of vulnerability being preyed upon by people in positions of power. Abuse is all about the use of power in positions of trust for one's own gratification at the expense of others. And all too often, the vulnerable are powerless and defenseless against it. And this angers the psalmist. And he's owning it. If you don't own your anger... It will own you. It will run your life, but in ways that may not be immediately obvious at the outset, but eventually you'll see when it isn't owned and acknowledged, it will wreak havoc and wreckage on all your relationships and on your own heart. So that the first step when you are wronged is you have to own your anger. But how do we do this well? And that leads to the second thing is we got to pray it. And that's surprising to some of us because we think prayers are supposed to be polished and polite and therefore anger could never have any place. But who is the psalmist talking to the whole time? He's talking to God. And that's fascinating because part of what has him so upset is that God feels so distant to him right now. In fact, Eugene Peterson in his translation, The Message, 
uh, translates the first verse like this. God, are you avoiding me? Where are you when I need you? God seems hidden. He seems asleep at the wheel. But the psalmist is still going to God and he's bringing his anger with him. When is the last time that you prayed an angry prayer? Have you ever? There's lots of angry prayers in the Bible, but we pass over them. And one of the reasons why is instead of praying our anger, sometimes we seek to just vent it. There's those of you here who are like, yeah, I know burying anger is bad. We have to do something about it. We got we to gotta get it out. We got to let it out. And that often comes out in very foolish and destructive ways. See, there's, there's a common belief these days that we modern people were way, way more in touch with our feelings than ancient people ever were. Because we go to therapy, right? We, we put our feelings on Facebook and social media. I guess not Facebook anymore, but we use emojis in our text because we are so in touch with our emotions and feelings. But the one emotion that we have the most trouble with is anger. And it's become a huge problem. It even has a name. Outrage culture. People are outraged and they're giving expression to their outrage everywhere. You know the old ditty, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Well, we probably could uh, make one up for our day, which is if you're angry and you know it, get on social media and rip somebody to just shreds. Somehow we've come to believe that this is actually a good way of dealing with our anger, that this is actually good for us. And I, I want to tell you a story of uh, about 15 years ago when our church was looking for a place to meet for worship. Uh, we were visiting a number of different spaces trying to figure out who might rent to us. And we visited a local church uh, here in this area. And we were given a tour of the place and we were brought to the second stairs. And there was a, there was a room that just seemed very oddly placed uh, or structured in, 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 for a church setting. Because the room had punching bags and uh, very large like pillows everywhere. And I was like, what, what is this room? And the person giving us the tour said, oh, that's our angry room. I was like, what is an angry room? And they're like, that's for children who are having trouble with their emotions. We put them in the angry room where they can punch the punching bag and they can throw the pillows and they can get it all out of their system. And we decided not to rent uh, from that place. Actually, they, they refused us. But um, you know, there, there's, a, um, there's a social psychologist named Leonard Berkowitz who specializes in research on human aggression. And uh, many years ago in Psychology Today, this is uh, from 1982, uh, he, he wrote an editorial where he said he was responding to an article that had been published previously. And this is what he said. I was shocked at your advice to the mother whose three-year-old had temper tantrums. You suggested that the child might be taught to kick the furniture and get the anger out of his system. My younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. Well, he's 32 years old now and still kicking the furniture. What's left of it, that is. He's also kicking his wife, the cat, the kids, and anything else that gets in his way. Last October, he threw the TV set out the window when his favorite team failed to score and lost the game. The window was closed at the time. Now, I'll be the first to admit, venting your anger, it, it can feel good. It's like an emotional laxative. 
But if burying your anger is like burying toxic waste, venting your anger is like detonating a nuclear bomb. It causes all sorts of collateral damage. And some of you know this by experience because you've had a few detonated near you in your life. Or you've launched a few nuclear attacks yourself. The psalmist neither buries his anger nor vents it. He prays it. He pours his heart out in the presence of God. See, some of us think anger is always bad, never good, so it never finds its way into our prayers. But here it is in God's book, words given to us for when we've been wrong. And you know what praying your anger is? It's engaging with God about the real injustices of life. There is nothing sentimental or sappy about it. This isn't encouraging us like, oh, if you're angry, just pray about it as if a quick little prayer is going to resolve your anger. No, there's real wrestling going on here. Real stuff being brought into the presence of God. And that leads us to the third thing. We own it, we pray it, but we also process it. And prayer is the perfect place to begin processing your anger. You don't clean yourself up, sort it all out, and then go to God. You go to him and there, before his face, you begin to work through it. Prayer isn't the only place to process your anger, but it is the best place to begin. And I believe that this is how we need to understand this psalm and others like it in the Psalter. The psalmist is processing his anger before the face of God. When he asks His why questions in verse 1, what he's saying is this. God, why aren't you doing anything? This isn't like you. This isn't who you are. This isn't who I know you to be. He's working through it before God's face. He's processing his anger in prayer. Because before the face of God, in private prayer, and by the way, in public worship, is where you'll begin to discern the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. You know, there's lots of reasons that we get angry that aren't legit. Road rage, for example. We, we take traffic jams so personally, as if there's this conspiracy of motorists out there trying to prevent us from getting to where we need to go on time. Or how about jealousy? We're angry at somebody else's success, someone else's blessings. Or wounded pride. Some, someone doesn't think we're as important as we think we are. Before the face of God, in prayer, we begin to process it. And sometimes we find that we need to repent of our anger. But this is really important. There is such a thing as righteous anger. The Bible warns us of anger's dangers, but it stops short of rejecting anger altogether. And the reason is God himself gets angry and his anger flows out of his love. That might sound strange, but consider this. I love my daughters more than life itself. And if someone messes with my girls, if they hurt them, I'm going to be angry. And I'm going to be angry because I love them. And I wouldn't be loving if I wasn't. The opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference. Anger at its best is energy aroused in defense Of something good, something that you love, and aimed at something evil. The Bible does not say God has no anger. It says he has slow anger. 
He is enormously patient, but there are things that arouse his wrath. He hates sin the way a parent of a child with leukemia hates cancer. He's angry at what threatens the object of his love. If you have a God who never gets angry, you don't have a God of love. And you know what owning and praying and processing your anger before God's face does? It forces you to ask the question, am I upset by the things that upset God? Am I angry at the things that make God angry? And if you are, you are right to be angry. As the psalmist processes his anger in prayer, he never backs down from his anger at the injustice and wickedness he sees all around him because he knows that what's angering him angers God. But notice, he doesn't take matters into his own hands. There's no vows to exact vengeance. There's no plans for vigilante justice. Instead, in verse 12, there is a cry. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. God, get up and do something. And that leads us to the last thing. Is that we don't just own our anger and pray it and process it. But we learn to direct it to the right place. Bringing your anger to God is not the same thing as directing your anger at God. You might think that the psalmist is directing his anger at God because of verse 1, but notice how his prayer plays out in verses 14 through 18. It's full of confident affirmations of God's character. I may feel this way right now, but you're not far away, God. You're not hiding. You see, you know, and you will take it into your hands. The psalmist is saying, God, handle this. And then he's affirming, I know you're going to take it into your hands. What's he doing? He's directing his anger at the right place. And this is happening as he processes it in the presence of God. He's directing his anger at sin and evil and injustice. And then he's putting his hope in the right thing. God and his kingdom. As he cries out, the Lord is king Forever and ever. If you don't own and pray and process your anger, you'll never be able to direct it at the right place. And this is important because when you've been victimized and you are rightly angry, it is easy for a general anger to overtake you. And if you're not careful, it can lead you to become a bitter, vindictive soul. But if you direct your anger at the right place, You'll find your heart hoping in the right thing. Anger can and should lead you to long for the kingdom. The psalmist affirms that in verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever because what he's longing for is for God's kingdom to come. When justice will be done for the fatherless and oppressed, when wickedness will terrorize no more. The way Eugene Peterson puts it at the end, orphans get parents, homeless get homes. The reign of terror is over. The rule of gang lords is ended. Rowan Rowan Williams used to be the Archbishop of, I believe, Canterbury. In his book, The Wound of Knowledge, said all authentic hope is in some degree protest. And that's what we find in Psalms like Psalm 10, is protest. The psalmist is crying out, protesting that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. 
But this anger that we find in Psalm 10 is also tethered to hope. That is not the way that they will be forever. So you might be asking, do we just sit sit around and wait for God to bring the fullness of his kingdom? Well, no, not exactly. The Bible calls us to do many things. And as David Pallison points out in his awesome article on this, he says, there is a time to call the police, file a class action suit, press criminal charges, pursue church discipline, seek counseling, weep with a friend, visit a lawyer, get financial advice, look for a job, talk to a realtor. The Lord is a refuge who leads us to rightly appropriate the many sub-redeemers who can play a part in our lives. But you know, that's not the point of this psalm. The point of this psalm is you got to own it and pray it and process it and direct it. Or what you do in response to evil and injustice won't do any good. And if I could put it like this, if you look to yourself and your powers of executing vengeance, you will become the wicked. Yet if you cry out to God, you will find that he hears, he bends his ear to you, and he strengthens your heart even now. Verse 17. So one of my friends put it, there are things that God has done and is doing behind the scenes, his involvement in the lives of those being crushed that we often fail to see or don't know about, but they could attest to And they do again and again and again. The reality is this. We often fail miserably at handling our anger. We tend to get insanely angry at people who wound our pride or steal our glory or get in our way. And we tend to not care about injustice and brutality and the things that we should be angry at. Unless, of course, they happen to us. And the Bible tells us that God is actually angry at our mishandling of anger. But you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that God has dealt with his anger in a profound way. The night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed, let this cup pass from me. That imagery of a cup was imagery drawn from the Old Testament. And it was the cup of God's wrath, his anger against sin. And it was God's plan for Jesus to drink that cup in the place of his people. To heal our sin, to heal and redirect our anger. I've told this story before, but uh, it's been quite a few years. When When I was a youth pastor back in the late 90s, I had a group of sophomore guys in a Bible study. And uh, they were a lot of fun, but they were a lot to manage. And they were wild and crazy kids who had difficulty focusing. And so I decided we needed to up the ante a little bit, uh, get everyone to take this a little more seriously. So I would give them homework each week. And if you showed up without having done your homework, you had to drink the cup of wrath. What was the cup of wrath? Well, the cup of wrath was what every other kid in the Bible study decided to pick from the refrigerator and put in that glass. So they would put milk and OJ and horseradish and sriracha and soy sauce. They would crush up grapes, mustard, ketchup, mayonnaise, jelly. It was nasty. And they would mix it all up. And uh, you would have to drink it if you showed up without having done what you were supposed to do. So one kid, the kid, kid by the name of Charlie Motter, I have a lot of stories about him. He had to drink this like four or five times. 
And then one day, Charlie didn't show up for Bible study. And I thought to myself, I may have pushed things too far. But the other kids were like, let's go to Charlie's house and make him drink the cup. And so everybody's like up in arms and they're getting ready to get in cars. And then Tyler Parr, a sophomore football player, spoke up and said, I'll drink the cup for Charlie. Everybody's like, what? That's crazy. No, why would you do such a thing? And Tyler said, I'll drink the cup for Charlie. And everyone was like, yes. You know, they get to make the cup. So that night, the nastiest, grossest, most disgusting cup that we've ever made was concocted. And Tyler drank it to the dregs. And everybody loved it. But more importantly, I think for the first time ever, some of the guys in those Bible study understood the gospel. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of God's salvation. Jesus experienced the anger which he didn't deserve because he took the anger on himself that we did deserve. And I want you to notice something. God did not bury his anger, nor did he vent it indiscriminately. He made a surgical strike, dealing with our sin while not consuming us. This is why Jesus is the only safe place to run in your anger. Because he will purify it. He will cleanse it. He will forgive what needs to be forgiven. And he will aim it for his purposes. We began by saying that we not only bring our sins to Jesus, we bring him our wounds and our scars. We bring him our anger. And when you learn to own it and to pray it and to process it and have it directed, it changes you. You'll be, able to, you'll be able to overlook petty things. You'll be able to deal with real offenses without the collateral damage. And you'll not only direct your anger at the right place, you'll let your anger direct you to longing for God's kingdom. When one day all will be made new, all will be made right. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you're a father to the fatherless. You're a help to the helpless. You're a defender of the vulnerable and the weak. And Lord, we do pray that you would rise up and that you would bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And God, we pray that you would do what needs to be done in our hearts where we have been wronged so deeply that you would help us bring it into your presence. Own it, pray it, process it, have it directed. And that, Lord, you would purify it that we might be agents of redemption in the world. Lord, we desperately need you to do this, and we need to know that you hear and see and care and are doing and will do something about this. Lord, give us that confidence and make us new. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.